The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood and welcome to the latest episode of the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm talking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. In this episode, we focus on the future of technology with award-winning computer scientist and social entrepreneur, Professor Sue Black. Named one of the top 50 women in tech in Europe, Sue is one of the leading tech personalities in the UK today. A passionate advocate for women in tech, she spent over 20 years campaigning for more recognition for women in computing. She's also well known for founding the campaign to save Bletchley Park. She's an OBE and she sits on the government's advisory board for improving digital services. Sue, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an incredibly uh, impressive career to date. I just wonder, for many of us, we feel like tech is moving so quickly that we almost can't keep up. It feels like it's an exponential thing. Can you cope with the pace of change? Are you completely across it all? Or or are you sometimes surprised at just how quickly this world seems to be revolutionising? That's an interesting question, because to me, it kind of seems fast, but then slow at the same time. (laughs) You know, having done some of my degrees in computing back in like 89 to 93, so it's Mm. quite a while ago now, there's lots of stuff that I learned there, which is still relevant today, kind of like the fundamentals of technology. But I think with... I don't know if you know about Moore's Law, but you know, like the kind yes. of computing power doubling every 18 months. That's meant that we've had lots of changes and those changes, I guess the rate of change is speeding up. I definitely feel that. I don't feel overwhelmed by it. Yeah. I just feel like it's becoming more and more pervasive in everything that we do in lots of different ways. And I, I kind of feel like it's reasonably easy. Well, I guess for me being a computer mm-hmm. scientist to kind of keep up to date, I don't know everything about everything that's going on in technology because no one can anymore. But I do feel like it's a very exciting time, I think. Technology is kind of changing the world in all sorts of different ways. I, I mean, I just love the fact that through social media, through uh, Twitter, using hashtags and stuff, People can connect with millions of other people around the world uh, around topics that they really care about, you know, like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And I see that as a massive positive force for good. But then, of course, you know, like with anything, there's the negative side as well. And I kind of feel like we should really be looking at technology as a suite of tools that help us to do what we want to do. And so, you know, it's not good or it's not bad. It's just a tool that's there for you to use. I wonder how much it's changed in terms of it being much more user-friendly. I wonder when you were first learning computer science, there was almost that, you know, you had to be a techie to understand anything that was tech. And it was sort of kept away from the rest of us, you know. It was was complicated almost for a reason. And now, of course, everything that we do that features tech from our phone to computers at home and everything has to be made so easy so we don't have to have a degree to be able to access it and I wonder from a tech person's point of view is that one of the keys now is to make everything incredibly accessible yeah yeah absolutely and I I find that really exciting you know so like you said when I started my degree I'd love maths at school and I guess that was my best subject and that's kind of how I got into doing computing at uni really I can just remember sitting in tutorials trying to write code getting it all wrong and you know getting loads and loads of error messages and thinking I'm never going to be able to do this but then finally coming out with a degree (laughs) at the end of four years 
even as a developer, as a programmer, so th those technical people, I think it's a lot easier. So it's not just for the general public that it's got easier in that way. It's got easier for all of us. There's just so many things that you can do in so many different ways. And of course, making those easy to use for everybody means that it's accessible to everybody. And, and for me, that's great. You mentioned your degree, and I just wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about your background, because for the future of technology, many of us assume that unless you've got A-stars in physics and yeah. maths at A-level, yeah. you, you don't stand a, a chance of being a part of this future. Yeah. Your background was very different. You got some O-levels, yeah. and then Five. that was the end Five of your... <laughs> perfectly reasonable number of O-levels, but <laughs> yeah. not what you would expect a professor to have. And no. that, but it wasn't the end of your education, but there was a hiatus. Can you just tell Absolutely. us about that? Yeah, well, so I left school at 16. I'd, I'd left home and, and I'd wanted to stay on and do my A-levels, but it just wasn't working with my family situation. Mm -hmm. So I left school at 16, started working and then actually got married when I was 20, had three kids by 23 because I had my daughter and then I had twins two years later. Unfortunately, then my marriage broke down and I ended up going back into education 10 years later. So when I was 26, uh, as a single parent, living on a council estate in Brixton, thinking, you know, I really thought this is the only way that I can think of to provide for my kids, really. And that's how I went back into education. So many people listening to this will think that to have got from a position where you were 23 with three small kids and... I mean, I know that when you yeah, when you refuge, when you left home, you went to yeah. to, to a woman's refuge. Yeah. To get from that to a situation where you're a professor of computer science yeah. sounds almost impossible. How do you achieve that? <laughs> Honestly, I can't really believe it myself. <laughs> to tell the truth, I think kind of just by going for what you want over and over again. And you know, I've kind of I've learned that lesson. I've almost taught myself that lesson throughout my career. So back then, I just wanted to earn enough money to look after my three children. Mm. Was really my main focus. But, you know, I had wanted to stay on at school, so I was interested in education. I've always been someone that read loads and loads and loads. I went along to the local college and uh, did a maths course at night school there, then did a degree in computing, stayed on, did a PhD, which makes it all sound very easy. But, of course, you know, there were challenges with being a single parent with three kids doing all I of that. I have absolutely no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then became an academic, applied for a lectureship when I was doing my PhD, applied for promotion any time I could. And basically, I've just kept going towards the things that I wanted to do. So I always, well, for a very long time, wanted to be a professor of computer science and I'm not a spring chicken now, but finally I got there. <laughs> do you think that your background and the fact that you came to this um, position, you know, in the, in, the, in the kind of hallowed halls of academia through a very different route has actually influenced the way that you relate both to tech and to the education system? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I have a very non-traditional background, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really helped me to see things differently. I think, you know, like living in poverty for three years with my kids, of course that's going to affect the way you see things and bring up kids on your own even, mm. you know. Because lots of those circumstances were difficult earlier on in my life, I think it's gradually built confidence in me when I've overcome massive challenges in my life that basically... I can do whatever I want to. And of course, it all takes time. But the more you challenge yourself, the more you put yourself out there and do things that you're not actually sure you really can do, the easier it gets for next time. So I've just pushed myself, pushed the boundaries of what I want to do more and more and more. And it's just kind of worked, you know, like gradually. It's, it's a process of, you know, that's kind of 30 years ago. So it's not happened overnight. Mm -hmm. But I feel like as I've been successful, I've gone on to other successes. You mentioned living in poverty, and I wonder if you are concerned that we are in a situation where there is a divide between people who have got access to all this amazing technology and those of us who haven't. And is there a danger 
that we actually create a more unequal society as technology as technology advances? Or do you think that tech can actually help us unite and, and, and make this more of a level playing field? Both those things at the same time. Mm. I think I've set up a social enterprise now, Tech Mums, which really focuses on reaching women, reaching mums who are living in kind of areas of disadvantage and helping them to see what opportunities are out there. Because I think a lot of the time, if you're not kind of connected in, you really don't know what's going on in the world. And if you don't know what's going on, it's very hard for you to make the right decisions for yourself, for your family, to realise what opportunities are out there for you to change your circumstances. You know, like understanding technology to a certain extent now is like being able to read was and the printing press. If you imagine now not being able to read, I think not being able to use technology, I don't think everyone's got to be an amazing programmer or something. Does everyone have but, to be able to code? No, no. Well, I just think it's good to know what it is. Yeah. So, so I think... You know, like with Tech Mums, is like a 10-week programme, so mm-hmm. 20 hours. And at the end, we, we get our mums coding. And even though they've gone through the sessions before they get to the coding, doing all stuff like app design and web design, the aim with that is, is to build confidence and they get to the coding bit at the end. And, and they're still quite apprehensive about, you know, what is this kind of magic thing, which I think if you don't really know what it is, it might seem like. Um, but then, you know, after 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour of having a go, everyone sees that actually it's not rocket science. You know, it's basically kind of logical thinking. And it's the sort of thing that anyone can do at a simple level. Anyone can do it. It's not that difficult. Really? Because, I mean, my kids can code. Yeah. You're basically describing me here. You know, I feel <laughs> like that, that this is some kind of holy yeah. grail and something that I would not be capable of doing. Yeah. Can everybody code? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm. That, not everyone can be a software engineer. Mm but everyone can definitely code. You know, it's like saying, can everyone learn to write? If you do know how to write, it's a lot easier to learn to code than if you, you know, you don't know how to write. So it, it's something that definitely everyone can learn. We've already talked about your unorthodox route to the top of your profession. But in fact, just being a woman makes becoming a professor of computer science much more unlikely than if you were a man. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still only about 20% of people in your field that are women. Yeah. Why should that matter to the rest of us? Why should it matter to the world at large that there are so few computer scientists who are women? We talked about how technology is becoming all pervasive in society. So if we've only got 20% of the people that are producing technology products and services, if only 20% of them are women, then we're missing out on their expertise, their background. If we want products and services that are fit for the future, Mm. that are fit for the general population... Of course, we've got to have diverse teams creating those products and services. So, so and women in tech is one part of it. But I think diversity in general of, of all sorts is critically important. I have this vision of geeky white men in yeah. Silicon Valley yeah. who are creating my tech future and, in fact, quite a lot of my future. Um, and it does worry me that women aren't doing it, I think, probably because I worry that if women were doing it, they might be looking at sort of areas of our lives that would be more helpful, you know, and they would be creating apps for areas that work better for women. Yeah. Is that a valid worry that actually you think that if the future is being created by a small section of society, then that section of society will benefit more from the tech advances? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got to have diverse teams in there creating these products. Otherwise, they're, they're not fit for purpose. But how do we change it? Because, you know, this has been, I know you've been fighting this battle, banging yeah. this drum for rather a long time, yeah. and it doesn't feel like a lot has changed, has it? 
Well, if you look at the percentages, you know, so I set up the UK's first online network for women in tech 20 years ago, BCS Women. You know, I was going to computer science conferences and there might be like 10 or 20% women there. And to start with, I didn't really realise that I was in a minority mm. there because my whole world in university was, it was about 10% women on my course. So I didn't really think about it. And then I went to a women in uh, science conference in Brussels where it was 100% women. And that just completely changed my life and my perception of myself because I thought that I'm not very good at going to conferences and talking to people because I had some not so great experiences at the sort of general computer science conferences. And then I went to this women in science conference and it was incredible in that it was just so easy to talk to everybody. It just felt a bit more like... I don't know, I just felt very at home. And it was you very felt comfortable. like, oh, this is what it's been like for everybody else well, all this time. Well, yeah, 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 absolutely. So I came back from that and thought, well, I've got to connect together the women in tech, the, the work mm. in tech in the UK, so that we can all have these conversations with each other because I'm kind of missing that and we're all missing mm. that. So set up this network. I think at that time it was about 20% women in tech mm. and it's still the same today. So yeah. there's 20 years, the percentages haven't changed. But the whole atmosphere has changed dramatically. You know, that was like the first online network for women in tech in the UK. Well, now there's probably hundreds of all different sorts of networks of women in tech of all different sorts, um, you know, around specific programming languages, all different sorts of things. So things are really changing. And I can really feel, I think we're getting towards a tipping point where things really are going to change. And there's just so many programs so many projects which are focusing on getting more women into tech. And also corporates are now really keen to employ technical women, which 20 years ago they were like, well, if we, women wanted to be in tech, they would be. You know, mm. like, why should we do something about it? I think the companies now that really understand and put diversity at the core of their businesses are the ones that are going to be successful in the future because if you're creating products and services, they need to be fit for purpose for mm. everybody, not for just one small section of society. And people are realising more and more that, that that needs to happen. It's interesting. I think I've been asking uh, for a number of years in various interviews, how can we attract more women into dot, 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 you know, into, yeah. into maths, into science? But you put it in an interesting way where you said, actually, a lot of this is about the companies wanting to attract women in. Yeah. And if companies are offering great packages and good deals and good working spaces for women who have got tech backgrounds or even who perhaps haven't necessarily got a tech background but who can be trained in tech, yeah. then that's a really good way to get women in rather than women having to bang on the door themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I quite often get asked now by people because I, I, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, mm. what's the one thing that we can do in our company to get more technical women applying for our roles? And the thing is, there's not one thing you can do. Yeah. It's a massive issue. It's related to to the whole issue of our society and how that runs, how we bring up girls and boys, how we treat girls and boys growing up, how we treat men and women. And I think it's something that we need to really work on for our society to function as, as well as kind of the workplace and as well as the smaller kind of subsection of uh, technology. If we carry on bringing up girls to stay in the background not speak until they're spoken to, help your mum make the sandwiches mm. kind of stuff. And then we bring boys up to get out there and compete. Obviously, not everyone gets brought up by that. But, you know, these stereotypes and these behaviours still exist. I've got two boys and two girls. I'm sure I've done things which are kind of sexist with my kids not realising. We've mm. all got it. But it's just to be aware of that. And then, so then if you take those, you know, those girls and those boys that have been brought up that way, put them into the workplace... Mm. And then you ask the guys to be more touchy-feely, uh, sort of friendly and supportive mm -hmm. in the workplace, but they've been brought up to compete with mm -hmm. each other. They're not used to that, so it might be difficult. And then you've brought the girls up to kind of stay in the background and not put themselves forward. And now in the workplace, they're told, no, you've got to put yourself forward all the time. 
I th- you know, I think that's where imposter syndrome comes from. You're not brought up to behave like this, but then suddenly you have to and it's, you know, it looks bad if you don't do it. Society's created these issues in the way that we bring kids up and then in the workplace. It's a very interesting time, I think, at the moment, really. One practical thing that you've taken on is something called Tech Up Women. Yeah. Explain to me a little bit about that. I've really throughout my career been keen to champion diversity and also I think from living on a council estate in Brixton, knowing lots of people living on low incomes, particularly women, Mm -hmm. I get treated very, very differently now as a professor of computer science (laughs) from how I did as a single parent who'd left school at 16 living on a council estate. So, you know, like the opposite ends of the spectrum, really. Mm. Of course, I still remember what that was like, and I'm still the same person Mm. as I was then. And so I know that people on lower incomes, people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds in all different sorts of ways, have a harder time being successful in the way that society sees it than people that don't have those backgrounds. And so I've always wanted to do stuff about that. So Tech Mums, my social enterprise, is focusing on that, on empowering women. And then Tech Up Women, I've seen throughout my career, there's loads of women who want to work in tech but haven't got the exact qualifications or whatever to Mm -hmm. start working in tech. And there's loads of women who are sort of working in tech but aren't in exactly the area that they want to be in. And I thought, well, why don't I try and put together a program which will take women with degrees in whatever subject into a tech career? Got funding from the Institute of Coding and we put together a six month program funding women in the North and the Midlands, particularly from underrepresented backgrounds. So we've got more than uh, 50% women of colour, which I'm delighted with, a high percentage of uh, women with disabilities and LGBT women. I'm just delighted that we've been given this opportunity to make that happen. We've got four residential weekends as part of the six-month programme and we just had our first residential last month in Durham and it was just incredible to see 100 women almost blossom right Mm. in front of our eyes. Honestly, it was just so incredible. Lots of crying (laughs) and lots of hugging and, you know, I just know those 100 women, they're going to be amazing employees or they're going to start up their own businesses And they're going to be amazing women in tech. You can just see it right from the very beginning. What we need is a lot more opportunities for women to train into tech careers because lots of companies are asking for women who work in tech who are technical to apply, but they might not have exactly the skills that the company wants. Not many companies seem to be coming up with some kind of program to take women who've got the potential and then train them into those jobs. And so this is, for me, a kind of experiment in showcasing, I guess, that 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 can happen. And there are lots of jobs in tech for the future, aren't there? I mean, areas like cybersecurity is just one small example for women in particular, but for, for everybody looking at a career in the future, tech's going to be a crucial part of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I really think it's like reading and writing now. You know, I mean, I think it can be hard for some people because we didn't learn tech at school. I mean, kids are learning stuff now, but still, it's not really fit for purpose what they're learning at school. You know, I've got a 15-year-old daughter. What she's learning to do with technology at school is not great. That's not the school's fault. I think our whole education system needs upgrading and updating. It's very much out of date, I think. You know, even understanding basic web searches, understanding stuff like what is a phishing email, you know, we, we need to know these things. 
And these things change a bit over time. So, you, you know, we need to help everybody to understand what's going on out there, access the opportunities that are out there in technology. And I mean, I, I really wish the government would put together a programme. They could even use our Tech Moms programme, which has worked very well. It's kind of like, you know, holding someone's hand and take them into the world of, of technology, showing them what the opportunities are. And then, you know, we see the mums that come on our programme flying, basically, just doing so well after they've been on the programme. If you don't know those basic skills, I think it's very difficult to feel confident in technology and kind of just get out there and do things. I'm sure there are an awful lot of people who would uh, who would benefit and who would love yeah. to have the opportunity to do just that. Yeah. Exactly. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about social media. You were yeah. a very early adopter of social media. I think you were on Twitter about a year after it, <laughs> yeah. year after it was launched. Yeah. A lot of people are concerned these days about the kind of pressure that it puts on all of us to live our perfect life. Yeah. Tell me why you think that social media is a good thing. <laughs> I love social media, I have to say. It can just connect you to so many people around the world that care about the same things that you do. So from running the Bletchley Park campaign, you know, I signed up for Twitter in 2007, but actually I thought, what is this rubbish? And mm. I didn't use it again until <laughs> 2008. So I was running a campaign to try and save Bletchley Park. Just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter, I could connect with everyone in the world that was tweeting about Bletchley Park and have a conversation with them because I could start tweeting them and, and start a conversation. I could do the same thing by putting code breakers, for example, into the search box and then find everyone that was talking about code breaking and have a conversation with them. So for me, that was an amazing way to build a community of people globally who cared about Bletchley Park. Before Twitter existed, that was impossible. So I think from those early days, you know, that's like 2008, which is almost quite a long time ago now. <laughs> it's just kind of grown from there, really. And I've just, you know, there's loads of people that I met through Twitter that got involved with Bletchley Park campaign or I've just met for various other reasons because we connected around something that I've then met up mm. with in real life. People used to say, you know, I don't want to know what you had for breakfast kind of thing was uh, what people used to say about Twitter. But I just find it an amazing way to find people that care about the same things that you do. Let me take you back a little bit to talk about the campaign to save Bletchley Park. How did that come about? Why did you get involved? Back in 2003, I didn't really know what Bletchley Park was. I kind of knew the codebreakers were there and that's about it. Um, so I went up to a meeting there and after the meeting, I went for a walk around to just see what the site was and ended up bumping into the guys that were rebuilding Alan Turing's bomb machine, uh, which kind of industrialised the codebreaking process. All the machines were destroyed at the end of World War II. Everyone had signed the Official Secrets Act, so mm. everything that was done at Bletchley Park had been kept secret. So I started chatting to these guys because what they were doing looked amazing, rebuilding this massive machine, and I didn't know what it was. As part of the conversation, they said, you know, what are you doing here? And I was there representing BCS Women, so the online network that I set up in 98. They said, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? And I was like, no, because I don't know. I just thought old blokes worked at Bletchley Park. You know, I didn't really <laughs> yeah. know anything much about it. I said, how many people worked here? And they said more than 10,000. So I was completely blown away because I kind of thought it was probably 50 old blokes worked at Bletchley Park and that was it. I think lots of other people thought the same thing. Mm. So I went away that time thinking we've got to raise a profile of Bletchley Park and the women that worked here. Because yes, that like, was 5,000 women. Yeah, well, and in fact, it was nearly 8,000 women wow. that worked there. Mm. Um, and young women mainly, sort of 18 to 23, most mm. of them. So I just thought, this is an amazing story. We need to get it out there. So that time, got some funding to run an oral history project of the women that worked there, interviewed some of the women. And then at the launch of that in 2008, 
I gave a speech about why I thought it was important, but then the director of Bletchley Park came and he gave a speech and he said that they were teetering on a financial knife edge. They didn't get some funding in soon. They'd have to close. And uh, I just thought, well, that's not right. You know, mm. what can we do about that? And then a few months later, I was invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park and did a proper tour with one of the veterans that worked there during the war. And he told us about all the major co-breaking achievements and he told us that the work that was done there had shortened World War II by two years and 11 million people a year were dying. And I just thought, so this place saved 22 million lives, but it might have to close. That's ridiculous. So basically that's why I started a campaign to save it. So by that time in 2008, I was head of a computer science department at the University of Westminster. I went away with a colleague. We wrote a letter to the Times. We were trying to get heads and professors of computing in the UK to sign a petition, which was on the 10 Downing Street website. Someone had set up saying, we need to save Bletchley Park. Asked them to sign that, and uh, lots of them did really quickly. Then I thought, we need to get more publicity for this, so contacted all the journalists that I knew, which at that time wasn't very many. But luckily, one of them was Rory Keflin-Jones from the BBC, who then took me up to Bletchley Park the next week, got me onto BBC News, the Today programme and in the Times newspaper and kind of that was the beginning mm. of the campaign really, a week after we started. And social media was key in that yeah, campaign. Absolutely. So we started off with traditional media, started a campaign. Within two weeks I'd done everything that I could think of to mm. do and managed to get on TV, in the papers, on the radio and then I was like, what do I do now? I don't know what else to do. And nothing much had really happened in terms of Bletchley Park wasn't saved. For the next few months I was trying to work out, well what else can I do? You know, like I'm a computer science academic I don't know about PR and marketing or whatever I need to do and then it was towards the end of 2008 I started using Twitter and realized quite quickly that just by typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter I could reach everyone in the world that was talking about Bletchley Park on Twitter have a conversation with them started building up a community I set up a blog as well saving Bletchley Park blog people started getting in touch with me because they saw what that I was tweeting about Bletchley Park Lots of people that were really great with social media involved with Bletchley Park got Bletchley Park set up on Twitter. And then just a couple of months after that, I saw Stephen Fry tweeting uh, that he was stuck in Centrepoint in London. So he tweeted a selfie of him and some friends. And I just thought, Stephen Fry, he must be interested in Bletchley Park. Um, luckily, he was following me on Twitter. So I sent him several direct messages. And the next morning, he tweeted a link to my blog. And I'd been getting about 50 hits a day on my blog. And that day I got 8,000 hits on my blog. So, <laughs> so that tech was incredible. can change things yeah, in a way that could was never have been possible before. I, I just couldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. I suppose a lot of people worry about social media and their children and younger people. Yeah. And I know that you've done some work around that. What is your advice to people? Because social media is here to say this yeah, is our future. It's not right? going away. Mm. So what we do on the Tech Mums programme, I mean, I feel like... For me, the worst case scenario is a parent that, of course, with all good intentions, tells their kids they can't use social media, but then everyone at school is using social media. So you stop your kids from using social media, but then they do because everyone else is doing it. And then they get into trouble in some way. And then mm. they feel they can't tell you because they've said they won't use yeah. it. So for me, that's kind of like the worst case scenario because then they've got no parental support, no adult support to help them with whatever it is that's happening that's not so great on social media. So what we talk about on the Tech Mums program is, you know, it's like teaching your kids to be streetwise. So when you have a baby, when your kids are growing up, you gradually teach them how to behave on the street, you know, what, what to do when you're crossing the road. Um, how to be safe outside the house kind of behaviour. And so you need to do the same thing online, I think. And of course, 
we're not all as used to being online as we are to going out into the street and crossing the road. So, um, but there are, you know, there are websites like NSPCC has lots of information about, you know, how to keep your kids safe online. And I think there's lots of information out there. So I think it's on us as parents to learn as much as we can about how to stay safe online ourselves and then have a chat with our children for me, I make it a regular conversation probably every day. I talk to my daughter about who's 15, about, you know, what is she doing on Instagram? What has she seen today? And I've had the conversation with her several times. You know, like if you see something which upsets you or frightens you, come straight to me and tell me about it. And telling her that's probably going to happen one day, but just come straight to me and tell me. I will admit that I'm not on Facebook. And yeah. a few years ago, that was a kind of a, a really terrible admission. Nobody could really <laughs> understand it or yeah. believe that you could have existed without being on Facebook. Today, That's probably it's, changed now, It's right? changed yeah. a lot, you yeah. know. It's just not that big a deal now. It seems that a lot of people have moved on. My kids are, I've, I'm on Instagram. My kids are on Instagram. Yeah. Twitter seems to be where a, a real sort of go-to place for journalists, for work. Right, yeah. But where are the next trends? Where are we going <laughs> with social media? I mean, presumably, it's going to keep evolving. Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, in that sense, how can we predict what's going to happen? Mm. But I mean, I really see that video is becoming bigger and bigger, you know, like YouTube and Instagram stories. I'll take it from what my 15-year-old's doing <laughs> and, and watching online. And, you know, she's watching people that she follows, what they're doing. And it's all video. She's hardly reading. I mean, she's reading small amounts of information, but it is all about actually watching what people are doing and and then people commenting on it. It's um, it's very interesting times, I think. I'd like to talk to you now about your predictions for the future. I know it's a very difficult area <laughs> to get into in yeah. tech because, of course, the whole point is that we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. But which areas are you excited about that are going to revolutionise our lives and, and improve our lives in tech? I think the whole being able to connect with people that you would never have been able to meet. So that sounds like a really basic and optically techy thing. But I just think that technology enables us to connect with people in so many different ways now around so many different kind of subjects. I'm very excited about the way that social media helps us to connect with people. You know, I really see that the sort of things that are happening in the world, lots of people feel very negative about it, but I, maybe I'm a sort of relentless optimist, but I feel very positive about it. You know, I kind of feel like we're all understanding more and more what's happening right across the world, not just in our local area. Because of that, I think we're connecting with people in different countries, different continents. And so people that want to make positive change happen in the world are starting to connect with each other and try to solve the world's biggest problems. And I think that's going to continue more and more. You know, as everyone in the world, I guess, gets online, there'll be the opportunity to positively affect more and more people across the world to create positive social change. So I find that very exciting. Of course, you know, everyone's now talking about artificial intelligence, which is interesting because like, so when I did my degree, like in 1989, I think that was one module in the second year uh, of my degree. And I kind of saw it then as a bit of a, something that's never really going to happen. So at that point, yeah. you just didn't really see a future for it? Yeah, no, because there wasn't the computational power for it to be what it is today. And I suppose, you know, I knew about Moore's law. The computing power will 
keep doubling. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And so I just would have had no clue then that, that AI could become such a big thing. And how, how do you see it positively impacting on our lives? A lot of people, they understand the term artificial yeah. intelligence, but they really don't know how it operates in their lives today or yeah. might impact on them in the future. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's basically bits of software out there somewhere which is making decisions about stuff that you're doing online uh, a lot mm. of the time. It kind of comes back to things that I think are critical now in terms of the diversity, who's creating these software products. So in terms of AI, in terms of the negative side, I'm worried that our AI systems are going to be too biased because mm. of the people that are creating them. Whereas there's a massive opportunity um, with diverse teams to be able to create AI, which is fit for purpose for everybody. For a lot of people who don't really understand exactly what AI is doing at the moment in their lives, yeah. can you just give me a practical example of, of how AI might be being used by us, even when we don't realise it? Sure. At the back of lots of websites, I guess, that we're interacting with, so, you know, behind what's happening on Facebook, behind what's happening on when you're buying stuff on Amazon, the decisions that are being made that you don't know about, take your behaviour mm. and... So that's the and bit then, that says, as you liked, as yeah. you liked this product, yeah. that you might also like this one Absolutely. or also recommended for you. Yeah. So there's some artificial intelligence going on that comes up with yeah. what they think you want next. Decision-making behind the scenes mm -hmm. that you don't really see. And that's going to become more prevalent in the future, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. with, with kind of everything around us, as we get... Because technology is becoming um, all-pervasive, so we're going to have medical systems which are using artificial intelligence behind them to make decisions. We're going to have systems that are giving out, for example, benefits to mm -hmm. people which are going to be using artificial intelligence algorithms behind it, making decisions. So just everything around us is going to have that kind of decision-making behind it. I know you're a very optimistic person, <laughs> yeah. but is there an area in this that worries you? What, what are your concerns? What keeps you awake at night in terms of our tech future? I think really the fact that, that those systems then are going to affect more and more people in lots of different ways. And if people don't understand what's going on, they won't be able to make the right decisions for themselves. So, so that worries me. And also, you know, so you can reach lots of people really quickly. Mm. It can have positive effects like Black Lives Matter, for example, millions of people who can connect with each other and make positive change happen. But then obviously that can be used in a negative way as well. And so, yeah, that's the sort of thing. If I'm going to worry about stuff, that's the kind of thing I worry about. It feels like we should all be becoming a little bit more tech involved than we are. Is that your message? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. For people who feel like that might be a bit of a step too far, that it's actually <laughs> quite difficult, what's the first step to take? You know, if it all just seems like it's all a little bit much, yeah. where do you start? Well, I think, you know, like when I'm talking to people about they're trying to get their grandparents, for example, mm. into technology, what do they do? I think the best place to start is with stuff that you know about already, but maybe there's something to do with tech which can make it better in some way. So think about your hobbies, your interests, even Google those and try and work out how is technology related to those things. What are people doing that are tech savvy, which are doing stuff in the area that you care about? What are they doing? Find out about that first, because it's not such a massive step. You know, it's a subject area you, you know about already. You know, that can give you confidence that you're not just completely stepping into the unknown, but it's something you know already. And then just a bit of a step further into it. So what's going on in technology in this area? Sue, so as well as being a professor um, at Durham University, you're also 
something called a tech evangelist. Is that right? Yeah, that's actually <laughs> so, my job title is Professor of Computer Science and Technology Evangelist. So tell me how you, you evangelise about <laughs> tech today. Well, and, well, I guess by like doing what I'm doing today, I do a lot of public speaking mm. and I, I just talk to lots of people. I can just see how technology and education have massively changed my life and my life chances. And I see that there's so many opportunities out there for, for everybody, really. And so really being a technology evangelist is going around and, and talking about that. Technology has transformed your life, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely, mm. completely. And when you look forward to the future, do you think that actually we're all going to have a higher quality and standard of life because of the advances in technology? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I would wish for, but it, it's very hard to say. That is a possibility for everybody, um, but it depends on what we as people do with the tools that are out there. Professor Sue Black, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. You're very welcome, thanks. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.